You're listening to an Art Gallery of Ontario podcast. AGO Talks are recorded live in the gallery and feature artists, writers, and curators exploring how art shapes and inspires us. Please visit us online at ago.net slash talks. Good afternoon, everybody. Hello. Thank you all for coming. It's so great to have such a good turnout at 3 p.m. on a Friday afternoon. Um, so thank you all for making the arrangements and being here. Um, my name is Sean O'Neill. I'm the project coordinator of the Grange Prize, and I'm really happy to have all of the artists present and three of our jurors, as well as Gael Morel, who's moderating the first panel for us, to talk about some of the themes and issues that um, the artists shortlisted for the prize this year traverse in their works. Um, there will be two panels today, so the first panel is going to start now and will run till about 4.20. Then we'll take about a 20-minute break, and there will be a second panel. Um, and we'll end around 6 o'clock, okay? Um, so, the first panel, titled Photography's Dimensions, will be moderated by Dr. Gael Morel, the curator of the Ryerson Image Center. Gael received her PhD in the history of contemporary art from Université Paris, um Panthéon Sorbonne, and she is a member of the editorial committee of the bilingual refereed journal Études Photographiques. Her research deals with the artistic and cultural recognition of photography from the 1970s and photographic modernism in the 1930s. Morel was the guest curator of the Mois de la Photo in Montreal in 2009 with the theme The Spaces of the Image and she has written essays that have appeared in a number of magazines and books. She has also taught the history of contemporary art and the history of photography at universities in France and Canada. And Gaëlle is the curator of the Ryerson Image Centre, which will be opening uh, Nuit Blanche this year, so we hope you all will be there. So, ladies and gentlemen, Gaëlle Morel, and she'll introduce the panelists. Uh, is that working? Can you hear me? Yeah. Um, thank you very much, Anne. Um, welcome, everyone. Um, so I'm just uh, going to do a short presentation of the panel's theme, and I'll introduce you our first speaker, uh, Annie McDonald. So um, this is uh, we're going to talk to this afternoon, at least for this panel, about photography and sculpture slash installation, um, and. Um, since the 1970s, uh, in a wake of postmodernism questioning of the photographic image, many contemporary photography artists have worked with spaces uh, of display, like studio, gallery, cinema, and the convention, both past and present, present as they push two-dimensional images into the three-dimensional realm. Um, so the question is really how can we make sense of these expanded uh, dimensions of the image? Um, so our first speaker today uh, is Annie McDonnell. Um, Annie is a Toronto-based visual artist. She received a BFA from Ryerson University School of Image Arts in 2000, followed by graduate studies at Le Frenois, Studio National des Arts Contemporains in Tourcoing, France. She has exhibited and screened works across Canada and internationally. Recent solo shows include the Art Gallery of Windsor, the Art Gallery of Ontario, and Mercer Union in Toronto. Um, group exhibitions include the Power Plant in Toronto, Malrune and Pollard in New York, Le Grand Palais in Paris, and the uh, 2012 Degu Photo Biennale in South Korea. 
She teaches in the photograph, sorry, photography program at Ryerson University, and her work is represented by Catherine Maurin Contemporary Art. Please join me in welcoming Annie McDonald. So we've been asked to just sort of uh, start the conversation off by showing some images um, of our work or other uh, uh, relevant bits of work. And um, I have three separate works in the show, in the Grange show, um, two of which are brand new. And uh, there's, a, there's a film piece on 16 millimeter and there's a new photo series. Um, but I think for the, given the, um, the theme of the talk, uh, I think the thing that makes the most sense for me to talk about is um, the picture collection series, which is a series of images that I have shown before. Um, so here at the AGO, the way that they're being shown is um, just as uh, five, this is an image from um, an installation, and a different uh, iteration of it uh, at Mercer Union earlier this year, but uh, for the Grain Show, they're being shown just as the five images in um, a space that we built specifically to show them, which is um, the dimensions of that space. Uh, it's, it's 9 by 14 are the same dimensions as my uh, studio space where the work was produced. Um, when the work was originally shown, it was part of the images, the, photograph, the photographs were part of a sort of more extensive installation work. Um, at Mercer Union in January. So this is, uh, these are shots from that, from that show. So uh, in that version, there were the photographs on the wall and then uh, the other big element in the space was um, this uh, mirrored um, cube, which was sort of like a secondary, secondary space within the gallery, which was also um, uh, nine, by 14, nine by 14 feet, which is the, the dimensions of my studio space. So that, uh, that mirrored cube had a few different functions in, um, uh, in, re in relation to the images. Um, the outside of it was mirrored, so it was mirroring the space of the gallery. Um, and then when you walked into the space, um, it was, uh, it was um, a sort of blacked out classic projection space. Um, and um, inside there was a film that was playing, a film that I made called uh, Originality and Repetition. Um, and that was being projected as a video projection. And it, in, the, in the film, um, there, uh, the film included a lot of the same images that were in the photographs. Um, and then it just also unpacked some of the ideas, uh, the same ideas through um, some, uh, a monologue, a performance by a, by, a, by a character, and then a few different um, sort of structural film, film things. And then also the space, uh, once, the film, um, once the film finished playing, um, the space would go dark, and um, uh, the box also functioned as a camera obscura. So... Um, the uh, in in the center of that of that front wall there was there was a lens embedded in in the wall, and so it was reproducing the um, the, the five images the five photographs um, inside inside the dark space. So um, the images themselves are uh, these sort of clusters of images of found images. Uh, that I shot on my on my studio wall. You can't really see it in in the projection, but you can see the the background of the images. It's it's very apparent that they're um, that it's another wall. That it's not a, a you know a mat or a blank a blank background. Uh, there's the sort of texture of the wall, and there are all kinds of markings um, 
that were just uh, that just happened to be on on my on my studio wall from different things that I've done on it before. Um, and the images themselves are all uh, they all depict doublings and uh, reflections and um, re repetitions of, Im of 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 images. Uh, so the idea with with that series was to sort of uh, take these images, these depictions of uh, of doublings and reflections, and then continue to sort of double and reflect and refract them through these different functions of of, of that cube in, in the center of the gallery. Um, so at the time that I was making um, at the time that I was making uh, thinking about making that work. I had uh, spent the last, the, the previous few years sort of uh, diverging from a photographic practice and doing a lot of work that was more uh, installation based. Uh, I worked a little bit with, I made some sculpture. Um, I had worked with sound. I'd sort of moved away from my, um, from my work in photography and film. And that, the show at Mercer marked a, a return for me. And so I was thinking a lot about um, about photography and the way that uh, the strategies of photography have sort of infiltrated a lot of um, a lot of uh, the rest of uh, art, the art world and um, the, the the strategies that photographers employ very instinctively have also become the strategies that a lot of other artists um, are employing. Um, and I think specifically, what was interesting to me, or what is interesting to me, is I think, I think what, uh, what separates photography from the other uh, modes of art making is it has this very specific relationship to, um, to reality in that, um, in that part of its big magic is uh, it allows us to freeze a moment of, of time, to pull a moment outside of the continuum of time to set it aside and to examine it under um, under different circumstances, and then also I think that um, what makes uh, what separates photography from other other forms of making is that the defining gesture of a photographer is one uh, not so much of traditional creation but more of um, of isolation and framing. You're sort of as a photographer, you're sort of starting from you know this the the contents of the world, of, of, of reality, and then it's your job to just, uh, you know, hone in on the one that is, um, that is the essential thing for you. It, it's about, you know, framing and editing almost more than it is about traditional creation. Um, and I think that those are, those are things that um, I think uh, that, that, uh, that act of editing or isolating and framing I think it's something that a lot of contemporary artists do, um, especially uh, sculptors now. Um, you see a lot of uh, sculptors who I think use the space of the gallery as a sort of um, default framing device. And they just pull things from the regular world into the gallery space. They put it on a plinth, they light it in a certain way, and that signifies to us as viewers to bring a certain form of, um, of attention uh, to that object. And I think that 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 urge or that strategy is something that is really uh, founded for me in, in photography. Um, and I think that right now there are, there are a lot of different really interesting intersection points between the two-dimensional photographic image and the stuff that happens in sculpture and in installation work. 
um, I think there are lots of um, there are lots of sculptors who are pulling uh, photographic images into into their into their sculptural practices and just sort of um, especially uh, people that are working with uh, sort of like more in the mode of, assemb of assemblage. Um, I think that uh, there are a lot of photographers who are beginning to dabble in sculpture, which to me is something that is very interesting um, to, to see, um, you know, traditional photography paired with, uh, with sculpture, which sort of allows the artist to um, take whatever the whatever the um, whatever the ideas that they're working with in the photographed image and then just push it through this completely different um, form into the three-dimensional sculptural space I think a really good example of that was Chris Carreri's show um, uh, beside myself at uh, the Daniel Furia gallery uh, a few months ago um, and I think that um, also um, you have artists like Joe, who actually, um, in, she'll show you images of a series that she has called um, Space Force Construction, in which she's built these uh, sort of very three-dimensional, literal frames for her images, which push them out into the gallery space. So I think those are all different ways that we, as photographic artists, can engage ourselves in three-dimensionality. But for me, I think the most interesting thing to think about is to just uh, think about the space of the gallery itself as a sort of three-dimensional model for what uh, photographers have always done um, with the photographic uh, frame, which is to pull things from the everyday and ask that the audience um, approach them with a certain level of, of attention and focus. Um, so that, that for me would be um, uh, an interesting intersection between the 2D and the 3D. Cool. Thank you, Annie. Um. <laughs> um, so our next speaker is Jo Longhurst. Um, she studied Russian with politics at the University of Leeds and photography and multimedia at the University of Westminster. In 2008, she graduated from the Warrior College of Art in London with a PhD by practice and quickly gained international recognition. Her works have been exhibited extensively across the UK and Europe, and exhibitions include the Wadley House Archive in Documenta 13 in Castle, Photography in Britain since 2000, Krakow for a month, New Works, Pavilion Commissions, National Media Museum in Bradford, and 12 Dogs, 12 Bitches, Discovery Award, Rencontre d'Arles in France. Uh, a solo show of her new work, Other Spaces, is currently at most in Landudno, Wales, and will open at Photogallery Cardiff, Wales, in October. The Other Spaces book, uh, with essay by Sarah Nelman and interview with Charlotte Catan, has just been published. So, welcome, Joe. Thank you. So, um, I was thinking about this idea, um, kind of question 2D, 3D. Um, how, can, how and why are we pushing 2D into 3D and how can we make sense of that? And um, my first... Oh, sorry, sorry. <laughs> my first initial reaction was that um, in art practice, there's always been a really fluid relation between 2D and 3D. 
practices and ideas and experimentation. Um, and you get very specialised artists or kind of polymaths or, or both. Um, but there's never really been um, a strict delineation between the different kind of modes of practice. And photography um, is both within that and outside of that. And so it kind of makes it different. Um, there's all that photography that goes on in the, in the real world as well as in a gallery space. Um, and so it's an incredibly versatile and expressive medium. And um, I think it's a medium that has such infinite possibility in it. It doesn't really suit being pigeonholed into any very specific genre. Um, so what I decided to do today um, was to um, talk about some of my new works, um, not ones that are actually in the Grange Prize, but works that I've just re recently finished and which are in Wales. Um, and um, to open up this 2D, 3D debate, I'm going to show some pages from my uh, workbooks and some of the historical works that have influenced me. Um, I think that's fairly clear. So um, this image is um, uh, on the left-hand side is um, Kepler's uh, 1596 model of the universe, um, which, as you can see from there, um, he believed to be formed from nesting platonic solids. Um, and this particular diagram was inspired by Leonardo da Vinci's earlier original illustrations um, for the book The Divine Proportions, um, which was published in 1509, so it was kind of a long time ago, um, and these beautiful open-faced solids... Um, and these geometric forms were thought to be the building blocks of the universe. Um, so the perfect solids were fire, earth, water, air, and the whole perfect universe. And the other image on the page, um, I'm sure you'll recognize, is an Alexander um, Rodchenko uh, work. Um, and it was really interesting for me to see that kind of relationship. They obviously were looking at geometry too when they started um, um, trying to um, figure out a way to, um, a new way to work in artistic practice, how to make work that was appropriate for a, a new form of society. Um, so um, other sketchbook um, images here. On the left we have... Um, Lubov Popova's Space Force Construction, 1921. Um, and on the right, Popova's Studio, 1924. Um, they're both Rodchenko photographs. He shared a studio with her. And she died very young. And I think this was the year she died. So maybe they were taken as she died. I'm not sure. Um, so um, I was really interested in this work um, because I've always found it very captivating. Um, but also they had a very clearly kind of defined um, theoretical kind of practice. Um, they saw that this was um, experimental, non-objective painting, a laboratory for theory and practice. And um, their idea was to try and um, work on the expulsion of composition from painting because composition was equated to individual expression and obviously the new um, socialist or Soviet society they were building um, was all about the collective. Um, and eventually they turned away from painting altogether to make more sculptural works and practical objects that could be used in society. So um, my final source image is uh, Tatlin's Tower. Again, a really uh, famous image. Um, it was a utopian project to encourage the masses to mix together um, in, a, in a new transformed city. And I love it because, um, well, for several reasons. It never got built, so it's kind of a folly. Uh, Stalin or Lenin didn't like it. Um, 
but it's kind of always kind of hung around in art practice. Everybody seems to come back to it. And, you know, why is that? And inside, I don't know how clear it is on the screen, but inside the structure, there are three revolving geometric forms. And the idea was that each one would provide a, a place um, uh, of shared experience with um, broadcasting at the top and um, uh, party apparatus, different activities as it kind of went through. So... Um, as I say, it never got made, um, but it was fairly magnificent. Um, so coming on to my first work I'm going to show, this piece is called Pinnacle. Um, it's not the greatest reproduction there, so I'm going to describe it. Um, in the gallery space, it's 3.25 metres tall, so um, it's, it's quite imposing. Um, and it hangs at kind of um, from the gallery floor looking up, so when you stand in front of it... Um, you have to look up to kind of experience it. Um, they're tessellating photographs in separate frames, um, grey powder-coated metal frames, so it has this kind of heavy feel to it. Um, and the photos themselves, which are fairly illegible there, um, I uh, was a visiting artist at the World Artistic Gymnastics Championship, and um, I shot a series of images there, which I kind of formed the basis of an archive, which I then later drew on to make all the new works. And um, the images themselves, um, from a distance, I chose images that were kind of thrusting upwards. Um, but at the same time, I've selected images where either technically, because of the um, photographic quality of them, they're breaking up, or um, the gymnast legs are bandaged or um, have spray-on skin on them. And I chose, some of the gymnasts had very coloured bandages, but I selected the ones that were flesh-coloured because I didn't want it to be so immediately apparent. Um, so um, when I was making this image, I wanted to play with that idea of um, kind of utopia and health and vigour that's often associated with sport and the kind of construction of a kind of new idea. Um, but at the same time... <clears throat> um, these, you know, I'm very aware that these are images that both the gymnasts and the photographers would reject as unacceptable. Um, uh, I'm hiding for time. I need to move on. So um, this is an installation shot of it to give you an idea in the gallery. The gallery ceiling is seven metres tall, so um, it's quite, quite high. Um, and in the same gallery around the corner, um, that's my new version of A to Z, and then the, um, the dark objects, the three objects that you can see there, are the Space Force constructions. Okay, so these works also drew on the World Championship archive. Um, and um, uh, these are actually three separate files um, merged into one to give you an idea. So Space Force construction number one, United States of America. That's the red one at the top. Space Force construction number two, China. Uh, and Space Force Construction Number Three, India. And um, how I put these together is um, I worked with the images that I could respond to, colours, movement, style. Um, they're, they're linked and united by um, both the colour of the gymnast leotard um, and Rodchenko's uh, pure colours, his paintings. And the... Um, the proportions of the back plate are actually the same proportions as Rodchenko's pure colours. And um, obviously, uh, pure red, um, United States of America, um, pure yellow colour, uh, China, and then um, pure blue, um, the painting is now black, so um, in my work it's black and it's India. And um, 
the uh, gymnasts themselves, I selected the image um, at particular moments. Um, they're not very clear here, but um, you can see them, some of them in the Granger Pies, but also on my website they're, they're presented very clearly, so you can get an idea. But they're not a series that will ever appear as a series of images. Um, I didn't think of them like that. Um, I've caught them again in movement, but either their hands or feet are often in focus or sharp. Um, although they're really famous gymnasts, they're like they're all performing uh, mainly on the vault at the world, the final of the world championships. Um, I'm not interested in their celebrity status, so um, the faces are often blurred or kind of hidden. Um, but it was really important to me to be taking those photographs at that time um, with these very elite gymnasts as they were competing. So um, I made these constructions. Um, as Annie alluded to, really, I wanted to present these images in a way that might um, invite the viewers to think about um, this particular discipline differently. Because I think, um, particularly with sports photography, I mean, it has very particular function, and it really exists out there in the world to um, convey a, um, a narrative um, who did what, who fell, who succeeded, who, um, how the competition trajectory went, and then obviously the, the key shots of um, you know, the highlights. And so um, it's very rare to see um, different approaches, and I felt that not only did I want to try and um, photograph these gymnasts differently, and I was there with the press with the same equipment as the press, but maybe slightly smaller lens, um, but I wanted to produce something that um, was my, my vision of what was going on. So um, these structures for me both um, give a context and a history to the work, um, but also they can be enigmatic. You don't need to know any of that stuff to kind of get something from them. And they sit in the gallery space low and high, and um, the lights are actually off when we took these installation photographs. Um, but um, the lights come through them and it changes with time, so you get these other um, sculptural aspects kind of bringing something else to the work. And although the images are very still, you know, you can't get away from the fact that photography does freeze that moment, um, there's some kind of dynamism there as well. Um, that's a view through the side, just to give you a kind of flavour um, of what they're like. Okay, um, this is exactly the same piece as we have upstairs, um, the same material, but um, in this particular, um, it was a small gallery off the main gallery at Mostyn, and um, I put this one in because I thought that um, making 3D practice, you don't necessarily need to um, make a sculpture, so I used the internal structure of the gallery space to, um, to provide a geometric form, and it was kind of a way of... Um, having this kind of fluid body kind of fixed within it. So um, the image is deliberately quite truncated the way I cropped it. And then um, this is, a, this is a, an, a photograph taken on the opening night of the show where... Um, Having brought my photographs into a gallery space, I then invited local gymnasts to come in and work with me. So um, it was an interesting experiment, and it's something I did with the dog work as well. I always had a kind of performance, and the breeders came in. Um, and with dogs and breeders, um, they really look at photographs differently to art lovers, and it's fascinating, and it's... Um, 
and it's exciting. But in both situations, the gymnasts and the dogs upstaged the work completely. So, um, but as they came in, I, I kind of said to them, um, we, we talked a little bit um, a few days beforehand, and then they came in and I said, you know, you are now my artwork and you have to obey my rules. I was very strict with them. And I thought it was an interesting way maybe to present back to them their discipline because they have these kind of rules and regulations which they work very tightly within. Um, but at the same time, they always see things through the eyes of a sports photographer. So I wanted to use their bodies and the sculptural space of the gallery um, to allow them to maybe see themselves differently. And I had this young girl here who was 11... Um, very quietly lying on the geometric mats I made, um, levering up into this whole position very slowly and then back down again very slowly. And the, um, the diagonal line you can see behind is the staircase. This is the bar. The staircase going down into a kind of tube-like, grey concrete geometric passage. And I had three more mats down there and three gymnasts, one by one, levering, cantilevering into straddled... Uh, handstands and back down again ten times and then when that one stopped the next one uh, levered into splits and back again so you had this very controlled staged one by one they would move um, and it was an interesting experiment because um, the girls loved it so much they wanted to make their own artwork and so I've now kind of handed them over to the gallery who are keen to do it again and I said I, I felt like my work was done so the girls are now curating their own intervention and leading a, a group of young local school children in the gallery. Um, and so for me, that was just uh, really exciting. So the work um, was important for me to bring it into a gallery space because it slows everything down. You can see things differently. You know, this work isn't necessarily about gymnastics. It's about lots of other things, which is why it's called Other Spaces. You know, you can go in all directions with that. Um, but it's also about um, looking at the world outside and um, not just seeing it how it's always presented to us. Thank you very much. Our third speaker for this panel discussion is Sarah Nelman. Um, Sarah is a writer and curator based in London. She is a PhD candidate at the Courtauld Institute of Art, researching photographic exhibition and curation in the Art Museum. She is also the talks programmer at the Photographer's Gallery and writes regularly about contemporary art for daily serving. Between 2006 and 2009, she was curator of contemporary art at the Art Gallery of Hamilton, Ontario. Welcome home, Sarah. Thank you. Can everyone hear me? Yes, okay. Um, so I'm gonna approach this question a little differently. Uh, I'm not an artist. Uh, um, as Gail mentioned, I'm working on a PhD at the moment, which looks at photographic exhibitions rather than individual photographs or even photographic uh, practices. So my research is thinking about trends in the way that photography is curated and displayed in art museums um, as a way of thinking about how uh, photographic exhibitions um, and uh, and the museums that show them um, uh, have uh, had sort of 
related uh, and reciprocal uh, relationships to the development of photography as contemporary art. So I'm going to talk about a couple of exhibitions um, and, and one artwork that relates to one of the exhibitions as a way of thinking about uh, questions around this photography's uh, expanded dimensions. Um, I think that uh, exhibitions, the exhibitions that I'm going to, I'm going to just speak about a little bit, um, uh, will give us some, some different kinds of questions to think about, um, uh, particularly um, maybe give a little bit more of a historical context around some of these questions, um, to think about the way that the relationship between photography and sculpture um, extends much further back than the postmodern period, um, even as far back as uh, the invention of photography. Um, okay, so the first show that I'm going to talk about and what I'm going to sort of focus on here... Uh, is one that a lot of you will be familiar with, uh, which is um, uh, The Family of Man. So I'll give a little bit of a background for those who don't know um, this exhibition. It was curated by Edward Steichen at the Museum of Modern Art in 1955. Um, Steichen uh, became the director of the Department of Photography there in 1947, um, and part of his mandate was to reposition photography in the museum uh, as, a, as a democratic art. Uh, and this was kind of his crowning achievement. Um, so the, the exhibition itself was, was epic. Uh, it brought together 503 photographs by 273 photographers. And they were organized around themes like love, joy, birth, death, um, sort of common emotions and experiences that... Uh, ostensibly transcended cultural barriers um, and put forward this narrative of a shared humanity. This is what we're looking at is a, a photograph of Steichen uh, looking at images as he's making uh, uh, a selection. And it, it, it came down to 503 photographs, but I think they looked at over, uh, over 2 million. The shortlist was about 10,000 images that they were looking at for the show. So it was... Um, it was a massive undertaking, um, and it was a massive success as well. A quarter of a million people came to see it at MoMA, uh, record numbers for, um, for exhibitions and certainly for, uh, for photography exhibition. Um, and between 1955 and 1962, um, it toured uh, the world. It went to 38 countries and was seen by over 9 million people. Um, it's, been, it's been criticized massively as uh, being a sort of exercise in... American myth-making and even uh, an act of colonialism. Um, and there's a lot to be said about the political critique of the exhibition, but my interest in it, uh, in this context, really lies in the ways that the exhibition utilized the space of display um, to deploy these archival images uh, in, I think, um, ways that have been really influential, uh, actually, on the way that we think about um, uh, photography and sculpture. Uh, so this is, is that a really terrible image? No, it's not that bad. Okay. Um, I wasn't sure if it would read big, <laughs> if it was good enough quality. So that's a picture of Steichen uh, looking at a scale model uh, of the show as it's being designed. Um, and I think it's interesting to think about exhibitions as themselves as these sculptural objects. Um, so this show was drawn from almost entirely from archival material, including the Black Star collection, actually, um, and also um, 
largely from popular picture magazines like Seventeen and most prominently Life magazine. Um, it's also, I think, um, worth noting that the title of the exhibition comes from a Carl Sandburg poem, which is about the destruction of the Tower of Babel, which is, I think has an interesting relationship to, to Tatlin's Tower as well, um, as you were saying that, um, and positions the exhibition in, and the photographs in it as this kind of rebuilding of a new common language um, with this potential to reunite a kind of shattered humanity. This is, of course, in the wake of the Second World War. Um, so... I'm sure you can't read all of the text there, and the point is not to, to be able to read all of the text, but just to get a sense of the really complicated nature of the architecture of the exhibition and think about um, the way that um, that um, the physical path through these spaces was uh, extraordinarily important um, to uh, the kind of... Uh, message and narrative and experience uh, that Steichen wanted viewers to have uh, as they came out. Um, so it was a, it was a laborious effort, um, the design of the show, um, and it was inspired by a Bauhaus designer uh, called Herbert Baer, um, who proposed uh, a really different um, alternative to the kind of single-line museum hang um, that we're so used to now, um, or, or, or were kind of in, in a modernist period at least, um, uh, which, which derived from um, uh, gestalt psychology, um, in which viewers were overwhelmed by images encroaching on their field of vision from every conceivable angle. Um, and there's a short description of the show um, from a recent essay by Fred Turner that I'm going to read because it gives you a, a nice sense of, uh, of what it must have felt like to walk around there. A series of temporary walls designed by architect Paul Rudolph channeled visitors through the images allowing them to move at their own pace, to pause where they liked, and to pool at pictures of particular interest. Some pictures dangled from wires overhead, some hung from poles, and at least one faced downward from the ceiling. Some filled entire walls, while others were as small as a handbill. Together, the installation and the images left few places where visitors could turn and not encounter a picture of another person doing something they were likely to recognize. Um, there's also... Um, Evidently, um, in one part of the installation, uh, there was a mirror for a little while. There was a string of portraits um, and a mirror so that as you walked along this particular corridor, you yourself as the viewer were kind of projected into the exhibition. Um, I think that's interesting. and There's a lot of, of mirroring happening um, in, uh, even in some of quite a lot of the work in the, in the Grange Prize exhibition this year as well. Um, Steichen eventually took it down because he thought it was sort of hokey. Uh, so it was only there for about two weeks. Uh, so this is an installation view uh, of the show. You can get a bigger sense of, of the way that it really was three-dimensional and sculptural um, and, um, and the way that it, it absolutely um, privileged kind of his vision of the coming together of these images as... Um, as a kind of object, the exhibition as a kind of object, as opposed to um, the vision of any individual photographer. Um, so what I want to highlight here is that it, it, is a it was a fundamentally three-dimensional experience, and one which required a really active engage engagement between the viewer and the space being negotiated, um, as well as a certain freedom of choice um, in terms of the path 
that the viewer chose in that complicated labyrinth that we were looking at, um, and, and the images that they chose to spend time looking at in this uh, saturated uh, space. Um, it's also worth noting that the, the last surviving version of the exhibition, after all of the touring, um, has been uh, enshrined in a gallery in Luxembourg. So it's been literally transformed from an ephemeral exhibition to a kind of enduring monument um, to the origins and the political implications um, of the image culture that, that we now inhabit. And it, it can actually be considered a kind of sculpture of photography, uh, I think, in that sense, which is interesting. Um, so I want to talk r just really quickly um, about this piece, uh, which is Jeffrey Farmer's Leaves of Grass. Um, contemporary Canadian artist Jeffrey Farmer made this piece. Uh, it was commissioned for Documenta 13, um, and I've been thinking a lot about the family of man in relation uh, to this piece, which I was lucky enough to see in Castle recently. Um, this piece is also made of, uh, out of archival images uh, entirely drawn from Life magazine this time. So Farmer um, uh, got hold of a complete archive of uh, issues of Life magazine from 1935 to 1985, um, and he meticulously selected and cut out uh, individual images um, uh, and uh, essentially glued them onto uh, grass-dried sticks uh, and made this mammoth kind of arc-like structure. It's, it's hard to tell from these images. Um, I had a video, but it doesn't work properly, sorry. Um, but um, it's, uh, it's 25 meters long uh, in this kind of narrow space. Um, it's, it's, it's epic, really, in its own way. Um, but um, the interesting thing about it, I think, is um, that it was, it was it's sort of opposed to um, Steichen's view um, it, it, the conditions of its creation were actually much more democratic. Farmer talks about it as a communally produced piece. It required 90 volunteers working 20 hours days to finish it. Um, and he didn't, I mean, he did obviously cut the images out and attach them to sticks, but he didn't do anything else to them. So there's a very strange um, recognition when you're looking at it about the relationship between, say, um, commissioned art photography and advertising in terms of the different scales of the images as you're walking past them. Um, and of course, just these kind of clusters of, uh, um, of kind of fads and trends uh, in different periods of time, because um, they are actually arranged uh, chronologically. Um, so there's a way, I think, in which um, his work actually, um, in its responsiveness, its inclusiveness, and its sort of transparency, um, achieves this democratic populist goal that Steichen's um, perhaps doesn't um, or in, in critical assessment um, has been shown to, um, to, to you know, have a, a, diff a really different political agenda. Um, but I think um, that Farmer's piece, by redeploying this kind of popular imagery in a gallery context, um, also actually illuminates Steichen's um, insight into... Um, uh, the capacity of photography to shape mass cultural identity. Um, so I'm just going to show you, this doesn't work. Um, really quickly, I'm just going to introduce you to this different exhibition, uh, which was also produced at MoMA, but in 2010. It was curated by Roxana Marcocci. Uh, it was called The Original Copy, um, Photography of Sculpture from 1839 to Today. 
So this was a show that looked much more properly at um, uh, two-dimensional images of sculpture, essentially, and thought about uh, this relationship between photography and sculpture over the entire history of photography's um, existence. Um, and the links that are made, I unfortunately didn't see this exhibition, I have to admit that very openly, um, but I know the catalogue very well and, and I've, um, I've, I've um, spoken to her about it. Um, so rather than um, kind of trying to explain the way that this show uh, does anything sculptural, I think it's a much more kind of self-conscious uh, attempt, as this panel is, to think about um, the... Uh, longer relationship between photography um, and sculpture. I'll show you, just show you a few of the different images that are in it. So, um, so the premise of it um, really holds that photography not only documented and interpreted sculpture, but reinvented it um, in, in the act of, of photographing it. Um, uh, and so the image on the left is uh, Horst's costume for Salvador Dali's Dream of Venus, and on the right, uh, Eleanor Anton's carving a traditional sculpture. Um, so a sort of surrealist approach and a sort of uh, feminist um, intervention. The Anton, sorry, piece is not, uh, not a great image, um, not a great reproduction. Um, it looked, though, at, at examples from as early as Eugene Atje and Auguste Rodin um, through photo collage and the ready-made, um, and then to the performing body. Um, and I think that um, what this show suggests is that, actually also is a Robert Gober sculpture, which has a lot to do with what, what uh, sorry, photograph uh, on the left, which has a lot to do with what Annie was talking about, which I think the idea of um, sculpture doesn't become sculpture until it's photographed um, to some extent, um, which is something, of course, that Jason's work actually um, deals with. Um, in really interesting ways as well. Um, so, so this show, I think, um, suggests that photography, it's, it's, it's not that the lines between the two, um, it's, it's not that you can't tell what a photograph is or what a sculpture is, but that they've been so, uh, they've been so integrated in terms of defining um, each media that um, that that interdependence, um, that sort of codependence, um, is extremely complicated um, and rich and still very much evolving. So that we can talk about it. Thank you. Thank you, Sarah. <clears throat> um, I'd like to follow up on, on MoMA and, you know, uh, photo exhibitions there. Um, we talked a little bit about it, we exchanged about this exhibition, but in 1970, uh, Peter Bunnell, the curator of the MoMA's uh, Department of Photography at that time, uh, curated an exhibition entitled Photography into Sculpture, um, and it was really about photography as a material medium, um, yes. and in, in the catalog, he's like saying art in photography has to do with interpretation and craftsmanship rather than mere record making. Mm -hmm. And I think it has to do with like the difficulties for photography to be recognized as an art form in history. Um, do you think, like, because you're studying also uh, contemporary displays, do you, do you think it, it, it's still um, 
like this statement could still be uh, valuable today? Do you think it's um, photography does need to be the, the materiality of photography does need to be shown so that it's recognized as an art form? Uh, I don't think it needs to be. Uh, definitely not. And I think that uh, you know, as I think both Joe and Annie made clear in relation to their own practices. Um, Photography just is no longer, can no longer be separated from so many other media and, and artistic strategies. Um, but I think it's interesting to think about that as a historical strategy in a period when um, perhaps photography still wasn't accepted as a fine art. Um, and I, I also think it's interesting to think about today with the... Uh, um, with with digital photography, um, I do think there's um, a kind of uh, a kind of work being made, um, which is um, trying to uh, um, trying to be distinct from um, from from digital media, and 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 one of the ways of doing that is is to accentuate the materiality of um, of the printmaking process or of uh, the photographic paper. Um, yeah. Um, I just have a question for you, Joe, maybe to start with, and then and maybe one for Annie, and then we can open up to, to the public. But um, are you, uh, now that you're working with those gymnasts and everything, are you, are you willing to go into a performance and, and make, you know, stage well, performances? Well, I kind of always have dabbled in lots of different things, so um, yes. I guess. I mean, it was um, when I, um, the 12 Dogs, 12 Bitches was my very first piece of the refusal. And um, it had taken years to get around all the whippet breeders and photograph their best dogs. And so when I first staged that, I was really quite um, concerned how cold and clinical the whole thing looked, which I knew it would because I was photographing the dogs in this very classic show pose um, with, you know, the correct lighting. You know, it was technically trying to make a proper photograph as well as a proper dog pose um, but I also felt they just didn't represent the animals I'd been working with so I wanted to get them in there and so um, what I actually did uh, for that one is I had um, Terence, my whippet who was still quite young then um, I stitched a whippet cam for him and this was in the days when you couldn't just whip down the shops and buy a you know a cat cam or something I, I kind of had to rig it all up and I made a kind of battery pack which we stitched to his side and it all got a bit dubious because there were a lot of suicide bombs going off it was a little bit alert but um, we had a dog crate it was, the gallery was like in the middle of a park um, and it was a group show um, I think a lot of the other people were a bit hacked off by the end because the dogs absolutely shot, stole the show um, we had a dog crate by the entrance to the park and a TV in it and Terence broadcasted live from the private view and all the other dogs came and they you know bizarrely they did actually walk around and look at a lot of the art so <laughs> I kind of recorded it afterwards in very poor quality because I wasn't expecting it to be so fabulous but um and occasionally, you know, when I played it back, you know, there were a couple of puppies sitting in a dark room with a video with trees swaying. And I'd, it really kind of threw me because I thought dogs don't look at pictures. Well, is that, is it the sound? Is it the movement? 
But um, also, they kind of had their own things. There's a lot of kind of bum sniffing and uh, jumping up and everything. And it was actually just quite wonderful for me to think of um, looking from a dog's perspective and not such a human-centric point of view. So that was like my that was my very first piece shown from that early project, and the performance was vital to kind of point up to me and everyone else how culturally artificial you know photography can you know is it's something we've created and it's kind of almost like poking up our strange conventions and ways of doing things and you know animals see things completely differently yeah of course it's uh, always unexpected what you can do with uh, and that's also i think the, that's what inst- sorry interests me in, in your work is that you're working with very difficult objects you know on animals and gymnasts. The animals were really easy, actually. The gymnasts would have been, but it was the parents and the coaches that made it okay. much more difficult. Okay. Um, yeah, um, I wanted to ask you, Annie, uh, maybe a question, if you can just elaborate a little bit more. You, you've talked about it, but I, I think it, it would be good for you, if uh, for everybody, if you could elaborate a little bit more about um, this idea of, you know... Um, thinking about the medium itself. Uh, your work is really about um, um, the intellect- intellectual way to approach the medium and, and how photography can be seen as an object and, and, um, and this self-referentiality uh, of the medium. And I think the pieces here really uh, talk about that. And you also almost, in, in the show you had at Mercy Union, you, um, you also almost quoted Rosalind Krauss's essay. Um, can, you, can you just elaborate a little bit more about this um, you know, ongoing project on the medium itself? And in the, uh, in the video also, if people want to have a look, you also talk about how uh, for you the content is less important than thinking about photography itself and images themselves. Well, I don't think, it's not that the content is, is less important. I think the content is always important. But just in terms of what is um, like a, a productive way of thinking about it as an artist, like as you're making it, um, for me, it's always been really productive to think about the medium. I know that that is completely like out of fashion. And I, I you know, it's, it's not something that um, people readily admit anymore, um, which I'm... I'm fine with, obviously, if I'm quoting Rosalind Krauss, I'm fine with being out of fashion, but... Um... I was not suggesting that. I hope she <laughs> no, don't no, no, think no, I was... No, okay. no, no, um, no, 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 I know. I'm, I, I'm saying it. Um, so... Um, um, but, uh, so it's something that, that I find productive, and I think it's just, I, I think it's just um, you know, your, your mind works in a certain way, and, um, and certain modes of thinking generate visual data from certain brains. So that is, that's my mode of thinking. Um, but I, I obviously, like, I mean, I, I think I still create images that are, that have a certain level of visual seduction as well. It's not like they're cold. It's not like they're abstractions at all. Um, the, I think that the reason also that I am so conscious of the relationship between, um, or the way that, um, not the reason, but um, how I ended up uh, always wanting to frame everything that happens in art through photography is simply because I uh, personally came to my education in art through photography. 
um, you know, I didn't know anything about art before going to uh, before going to photography school. So everything that I learned about what happened in the 20th century, I learned about through the framework either of photography or film. Um, that said, um, I, I actually do think that those two, um, those two mediums have really shaped uh, the, the, way that we, um, the way that we think about art, the way that we uh, decide what is admissible in the gallery. Um, and like I was saying before, even right, right now, especially um, with a, a lot of what's going on in contemporary art, I see that um, the, the gallery, um, I, I see, it, see it over and over again where just artists are just using the gallery as this framing device for things that otherwise you might not recognize as being art at all. And that to me is something that comes directly from photography. I think that photography in the early part of the century waged this, this battle uh, that really opened up um, what was admissible as art, but also the different functions of, um, the different ways that an artist could function. Um, and and I, I see the repercussions of that still continuing on um, now at, you know, a hundred years later. So, um, but I hope that I don't make work that, uh, that um, is, you know, always about the medium. I... No, but I think it's like a major part of your thinking and, and intellectually it's, uh, it's about this and other things, but this is for me, when I see your pieces, it's really about you know mirrors and and the the, the film, the, the the 16 millimeter films is about also you know those strips, mm -hmm. the abstract strips, and then it's it tells about the quality of the film. And so I think you, I mean, like you're saying in the video, this is when the interesting conversation starts. It's when you we talk about that. So I think that's all I wanted to. Um, say, is there um, any question in the audience? So we're um, recording everything, so if you can wait to have the microphone before asking the question. Um, anyone? Sorry, does somebody else have the microphone? No, no. no. Okay, great. Um, so Annie, you talked about um, how the gallery really is a framing device and it sort of signifies art for the kind of objects that are placed within it. In your installation upstairs, you in fact kind of introduce um, the space of the gallery, so you, you echo that, but then you also introduce the space of the studio and then there's also the space of the cinema, literally with a 16 millimeter film projector. Um, can you tell us more about the conversation then, given that that's how you see for many artists working now, just even quoting the gallery as a framing device, um, means something, what does it mean that you've gone even that one step further now and inserted this, these other spaces inside that? Um, yeah, so, the, so part, of the, part of what we did in the installation here was to rebuild that space to look at the photographs in, which is the space of uh, the same dimensions and size as, as my studio. And um, I have a very not impressive studio. It's a bedroom in my house. And, um, but I think the main, and the, the, the main function of that space for me as, a, as somebody who's making things is it has these great walls and I'm just constantly putting up images on the walls and taking down images and recombining things, putting things into relation with each other, which is a lot of the way that I work because I work with a lot of found images. So um, the walls are this sort of like perpetual album or perpetual um, sort of corkboard for me. Um, so... Um, 
the, the photographs that are in the show are just a literal representation of, um, I guess, the way that, the way that I think and the way that, uh, the way that I um, generate my work. In, it, it's probably as literal as I've gotten um, in, in showing that. Um, like, I, there's nothing that, that I haven't intervened on the images at all. It's not collage. It's just literally the images recombined in different relationships with each other. Um, and I think that, you know, I think that uh, we're, right now is a time, it's a, it's a very exciting time because, uh, you know, we're redefining the nature of the gallery and the museum. Um, and I think that, um, you know, more and more people are um, experiencing more and more art through, um, through the, the, the magic that is the internet. I think a lot of us now get most of our, um, of our art through the internet. That's where I see um, most shows. I think, um, and there's this sort of like diversification of platforms for looking at images and for looking at art images, um, which is which is super super exciting. Um, but I am also really happy that we still maintain certain um, of uh, that we still that the gallery is still part of that landscape. And um, an extension of that, I, I think that for me, um, the spaces that have always allowed me the most clarity of thinking are the gallery space and, you know, the space of the cinema. These are like closed off spaces um, where, you know, time sort of functions differently and your attention span functions differently. Um, also, like the, the library, I think, functions in a very similar way. Um, it's a space of concentration in which everybody is there to do a sort of similar thing together. And, um, and the studio functions in that way for, for, for the artist. It allows you to sort of step out of your, of your everyday life and focus on making. So um, in the show at Mercer and, you know, in, in this version here, too, it was just a way for me to sort of superimpose all those spaces one onto, onto the other um, to just bring them all into, into the same space, the space of production, the space of contemplation, the space of representation. Yeah, over here. This could be a question for either the artists or the jurors, but is the idea of uh, photography having a, a studio that's something separate from uh, a, you know, just a kind of a place for apparatus and mechanics uh, a relatively more recent uh, mode of working? You know, the because photography I don't think of as always having been uh, a place for uh, photographic uh, contemplation or reflection, but more for operation. So I could answer that very briefly. I think, I think it's really important, if you can, to have a space to be able to do that thinking and processing, because that's where everything really happens. But actually, most artists who are photographers that I know don't have the luxury of that. So I've actually got two studios, but I still don't actually have any blank walls to do what you do. And so that, that is actually the, the ultimate thing, because it's very hard to work. You know, you work visually, and so you can have a computer screen, like we all have computers, and I've got a dirty studio with kind of a equipment and crates of work and storage, really, which I still have to pay for every month. But actually, where all the work happens is in that visual thinking and making things. And, you know, photography, for me, is an object. And if I do it on screen, I don't really know how it will work. I have to physically make things. 
So even with my um, the Space Wars constructions, I if you look in the book, there's kind of like three or four different reiterations where I physically print things out and test them, and then I build things around them. Um, other things, it's to do with scale, you know, and materials. You you have to have them there to kind of feel how that might work. So suspension, you know, as a small image, it doesn't do anything for me, whereas the dirty, noisy, large thing is where it started to become interesting. So I think it's probably a luxury for most contemporary photographers in or in the UK, just because it's so expensive to have a studio, but um, in Leipzig, they have huge studios. so <laughs> And they all have them. Sarah, do, do you want to say anything about that? Um, I, I'm not sure... There needs to be a, a massive distinction between those two things, I guess, uh, between the, a, a sort of space of production and a space of, um, of contemplation. Um, and I, I, maybe for a lot of artists, those things are uh, really intertwined um, now, if that makes sense. Any question? Yep, over here. This can be a question for anyone, but it, it, it made me think of this when Sarah brought up her examples. Is the first person she shows that's curating is not a curator, is actually a photographer. So I wonder, being a photographer myself, is there a point where you feel that the photographer and the curator are different when they actually curate? When they actually, what's happening philosophically? So I wonder if you could give your thoughts on that. Uh, well, I think in the in the case of of Edward Steichen, um, is a very complicated uh, uh, figure um, who uh, did a lot of things in his life and um, is is more known in his photographic practice as a um, as someone who was part of the photo succession period and a kind of uh, a kind of a uh, modernist photographer, a very, um, a more, you know, um, someone who championed photography as a, as a form of high art. Um, and in his exhibitions, particularly the shows that he was making around that time at MoMA, uh, was taking a really different approach to the medium. Um, but at the same time, as a photographer, he also did a lot of commercial work, um, uh, you know, and was very involved in... Um, in mass media, in fashion photography, particularly. Um, so, I mean, it's interesting that you you so clearly think of him as a photographer, um, whereas I probably think of him more as a curator. So, you know, he he did these two um, different things, um, and his his production in each realm um, is actually really distinct in in lots of ways. He's 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 a curious character. He's a very curious character that way. Yeah. Anybody else? It also has to do with the times. I mean, in the 50s, probably most curators, <clears throat> I mean, photography departments didn't have any curators. Um, so MoMA was really the first museum probably in the world to have a curator for the department. There was no department when the museum was created in 29, in 1929. So you don't need a curator if you don't have... Uh, photographic department, right? <laughs> so, I mean, it's, it's kind of, it, it sounds stupid, but this was really as basic as that. Mm -hmm. So, I think um, the first curators at MoMA were also photographers for most of them. 
And of course, uh, with the recognition of photography as an art form, that everything changed. You know, professionals got involved, PhDs got involved. Like, everything changed because it, then it was possible to mimic what was happening in art. Um, it, it always strikes me, but um, would you ask um, a curator of a painting department if he knows how to paint? Uh, if you're a curator of the Leon Leonardo da Vinci show, would you expect him, the curator or her, to know how to paint like Leonardo? So, and, and, and for photography, it was really different for a long time. Curators had to be photographers because they were the champions of the medium. I think it's a, it's a really good point, and it's also in 1955, I mean the idea of curator was just not what it is today at all as a kind of professional field um, in the same way. Um, and um, it, it wasn't even a term that was used at the time. You know, someone producing that exhibition, he would have been called the director of the exhibition, actually, not the curator of the exhibition. But I was going to chip in. We are in a really different world, and lots of different kind of practices happen. And so Jason, who's clearly a photographer, is also a curator, and, I mean, there's lots of polymaths that do everything, and there's lots of spaces which aren't just formal galleries or formal art spaces where things get curated and mixed up. So I think it depends kind of what kind of curating you're talking about, and maybe... Um, well, and, and both of you. I mean, any, you know, any artist who's really thinking about the space that they're in, which is yeah. pretty much every artist. You yeah, know, so is, I think is, about is curating a, my own shows, definitely. Exactly, yeah. That's what sometimes I wonder now if curators are getting a little irritated with artists coming in and sort of like <laughs> self-curating and wanting to build walls and arrange things. And I think sometimes it's getting a bit... And, and I guess it's going the other way too. You know, there are some curators yeah. who sort who of... behave like artists. But that's yeah. the work, yeah. <laughs> but that's the work isn't it? The work doesn't exist. You know, it's not just photographs in mats in frames. So you have to well, have... Exactly. You, you have to know what you want and what it is and... How yeah, because it, how you're consci be. consciously dealing with installations, so of course you know what kind of installations you want. If you're, I mean, dealing with historical photographs framed on a wall, it's a totally different story, right? So a curator because the, can be because a the lot of things. Are dead. Sorry. If the artists are dead, it's, it must be a lot easier. It's easier. <laughs> <laughs> um, there are last questions. Sorry, um, it's a bad day. Um, maybe we, we can wrap it up then. Uh, thank you so very much, uh, the three of you. It was a wonderful moment. I hope uh, everybody enjoyed it. I'm sure everybody enjoyed it. Uh, I enjoyed it very much. So thank you. It was an honor to be here. I'm not a juror for the Grinch Prize, but I was very pleased to be here. Thank you so very much, Sophie, to have invited me. And um, it's always a pleasure to partner with DHEO. Um, thank you. Um. Um, we'd also like to thank Gael for being here as well. Um, thank you, Gael. And we'll be taking about a 20-minute break, 15, 20 minutes, so you have time to go get a coffee or run up to the washroom, and we'll reconvene uh, at 4.35. Okay? Thanks, everybody. Thank you for listening to this Art Guy of Ontario podcast. For additional recordings, as well as information on upcoming programming and events, please visit us online at agio.net slash talks.